Good morning. It's good to see you all. Res kids, you are dismissed to go to your classes. As soon as they clear the aisles, ushers, you guys are free to uh, come forward to receive the morning offering. It's good to see you. My name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor here at Resurrection. We're really, really excited that you're here. This is a, a significant time in our fellowship's life. We are uh, jumping into the book of Exodus over these next several weeks and, and really mining the depths of this beautiful story and, and thinking about how it's more than just history, right? It's, it's God's story. And, and being God's story, I have an eyelash in my eye. That's cool. It's all good. I'm not preaching in front of the church or anything. Um, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, being God's story, it's our story, right? It's our story. So I pray that we um, learn more of who God is over these next several weeks and learn who we are in response to that reality. I'll mention at the end of the service uh, sign-ups for some next steps that Nick mentioned in the, uh, the welcome, and so uh, we'll come back to that. But if you're here and you're looking to get plugged in, uh, this morning is a great chance to do so. And then next week, uh, discipleship group leaders, ministry team leaders will be contacting those of you who signed up and, and getting you plugged in on a team uh, accordingly to which you have signed up. As Jackie just read, this morning we meet a significant figure in the biblical narrative, a figure of whom you've no doubt heard, even if you have scant to little uh, knowledge of the Bible, uh, this person being Moses. To catch you up to speed, if you weren't here last week, God's people are enslaved by the Egyptians. The Egyptians, though specifically Pharaoh, are threatened by their growth among them. So he's ordered the murder of all the Hebrew boys. He tried to use a couple of Hebrew midwives to to kill off all the Hebrew babies when they were born, but they didn't listen to him because they served a better king. And so they uh, did not follow the king's orders. And so finally the king is fed up, the king has had enough, and he decides that any Hebrew baby that's born, his people will find it and they will make sure that that baby is thrown into the Nile and killed. It's against this backdrop that a man and woman from the house of Levi would conceive and bear a son. Moses. This morning we'll see God's hand on Moses from his birth to his growth and his self-imposed exile in Midian. Through all of this, through every season of his life, God is preparing Moses for his unique and specific calling. But the story of Moses is not simply about one ancient man leading one ancient people out of captivity to another ancient people. The story of Moses helps us understand how God brings about deliverance on earth. The story of Moses teaches us that God makes good on his promises through a mediator and a deliverer. The story of Exodus teaches us that God makes good on his promises through a mediator and deliverer. Moses, in fact, isn't the point of his own story. Moses, in fact, is a foretaste of a deliverer. Let's meet this Moses again this morning, and perhaps the one of whom he speaks. Verses 1 through 10, we'll call the birth and growth of Moses. In verses 11 through 22, we'll look at his life in Midian. And then in verses 23 and 25, we'll conclude our time considering the loving knowledge of our God. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 1 of the book of Exodus. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, a 
Let's put the Hebrew word there for just a moment, and then we'll define it later. Right. She took for him a teva made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Let's think for a moment about this passage as we look through it. Verse 1, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levi woman. The family, the tribe of Levi, would eventually be in charge of worship in the temple. So this is a significant fact. Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she saw that he was a fine child, your Bible uh, may translate this, when she saw that he was good, when she saw that he was special. What exactly does this mean? Is there any theological significance to this? Some commentators say, no, it just means that he's healthy, right? It just means that he's fine. Other commentators say that Moses, the author of Genesis and the author of Exodus, writing this story uh, down, uh, or at least sharing this story in, in, in oral form, is using some sort of parallelism with the beginning of Genesis, right? God created the world, and he saw that it was good, right? Moses is born, and his mom sees that he is good. And as God has created a world, now God is creating a man who will bring deliverance for his people, and ultimately he will create a nation, and then he will create a nation of the nations, and ultimately he will inherit that land, right? God's creative work is on display in the creation of the world and in the creation of Moses. She hid him three months because of the context of which they were. There was an order that all Hebrew boys would be killed, so she doesn't want her son to be killed quite naturally. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a teva made of bulrushes and daubed it. See, the word teva means nothing to us. It's just the Hebrew word we translate basket. But if we look a little bit closer, that word only appears one other time in the entire Hebrew Bible. That word only appears in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, and that word is the same word we translate ark. If you're a Hebrew listener and you're listening to this story and you hear of the teva in which Moses was placed, your mind would immediately go to the ark, the ark that was built to spare humanity from the wrath of God. Every Hebrew would have caught the connection. Every Hebrew would have heard, as soon as they heard that word, that the story God began in Adam, the story he continued through Noah, and now the story will continue through Moses. This basket is a little ark floating down the river Nile. Just as God delivered humanity through Noah, so too will some form of deliverance come through this baby. Perhaps that meaning isn't all clear at the time, but what is clear is this. God's hand would be on this young deliverer. Now in verses 5 through 6, worst case scenario happens, right? Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket. She saw the basket. So the one person you don't really want to see the basket, someone from Pharaoh's family, sees this basket that's being used to kind of hide Moses. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. And then in verse 7, Moses' sister 
who we'll find out a good bit more about later, who will be a key leader in the Exodus. Moses' sister here is a young girl, and she springs into action, boldly so in verse 7. His sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Not an uncommon practice in the day. Verse 8, And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. As Jackie was reading this text anew, right, I, I was thinking about this reality that, that all these little moments of deliverance had to happen, right? The, the Hebrew midwives last week were unfaithful to Pharaoh, but faithful to God, and, and the lineage of God's people would continue. And, and I, there's another little thing here that happens, and it's through this little thing that big things come about, right? When this daughter of the Pharaoh says, go, she has no idea that she's also setting in motion God's redemptive plan. She has no idea that this baby would be the one that rises up against her father or ultimately her father's successor. And this baby that she is saying, go make sure he survives, this baby would be a leader of his people. God's redemptive story moves forth like a bang with her word, go. So the girl went and found just the person to nurse Moses, his own mother. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. And at that point, she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Through the boldness of Moses' sister and the common grace compassion of Pharaoh's daughter, God is delivering Moses. By God's grace, Moses will live. And in God's goodness, his own mother will get paid to nurse him. This is obviously significant, right, in, in the story of Exodus. It's self-apparently significant. But I think this teaches us a simple yet profound principle. God is at work even in the bleakest of situations. God is at work even in the bleakest of situations. Moses had no real shot at life, yet somehow... He lived. God's desired end can come even through our worst case scenarios. Let me remind you of that this morning. If you find yourself in a bit of a worst case scenario for your life, God's desired ends can come even through your worst case scenarios. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. Perhaps a bittersweet few years there for Moses' mother as she nurses him, knowing that this baby who is hers will not much longer be hers. But nonetheless, he's alive, and perhaps there's some peace to be found there. The baby would be, would be named later. Pharaoh's daughter would name him Moses, meaning to draw out, right? Because she was, she, he was drawn out of the water. But she has no idea that there's a double meaning going on here. She has no idea that the one drawn out of the river would draw his people out of Egypt. Deliverance for God's people would come, and this deliverance would come through this man. But as is often the case, Moses' life will not be one of ever-ascending success. He doesn't find himself on this stairway that leads him ever closer to success and stardom, if you will. 
his life won't always seem like it's going very well. In fact, it's going to be a very, very, very long time before he will stand before Pharaoh. Moses is about to spend some time in a wilderness of his own, but even then, God's hand will be on him. Look with me in verses 11 through 22, and let's consider Moses' life in Midian. We begin with an event that sort of kicks off Moses' departure from Egypt. Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And there's a key little phrase right here that helps us understand some major movement in the story. Beating a Hebrew, one of his people. One of his people. He was a Hebrew baby grew up in the house of Pharaoh, grew up as Egyptian royalty. But here he is identifying with the people of God. Here he is identifying with the broken and oppressed peoples. He goes out one day and sees the burdens of these people. He's brokenhearted. He's enraged. He looks around to see if anyone's looking. And then he kills a man. Verse 12 says, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and then he hid him in the sand. There's an, this is an interesting moment for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, a murder has just taken place, right? Let's be clear, what he has done is wrong. And he knows intuitively that what he's doing is wrong, right? The text says he looked this way and that and did it. 99 times out of 100, when you have to look this way and that before you do something, you shouldn't do it, right? So he looks this way and that to see if anyone's looking, and no one's looking, but someone's looking, and he doesn't know it, right? And so he kills this Egyptian fella, and he buries him in the sand. This is wrong, but you can really see a sort of shift taking place in the way Moses views himself. He's starting to identify with the Hebrews instead of the Egyptians. Hebrews 11, that famous chapter of all these significant people of faith, tells us this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin. Sin's pleasure is always short-lived. Moses is rejecting his privilege and comfort to identify with his people. I think that God wanted to get the Egypt out of Moses before getting Moses out of Egypt. Does that make sense? I think God wanted to get the Egypt out of Moses before getting Moses out of Egypt. I think God is changing Moses, and this change in Moses is going to spark a change in his life. But then we ask a question about this event, like what is he hoping to accomplish here, right? I mean, who does Moses think he is? I mean, perhaps he has an elevated view of himself and his abilities, but perhaps he's just acting in rage. But nonetheless, he's seen this persecuted person be beat by his oppressor. He gets really, really mad, which in itself isn't wrong because that is wrong. But he, in his rage, goes and kills this person. But the question I would ask, looking back on that, the question we could ask if we're analyzing the situation is, what's he hoping to accomplish, right? What's his end game? And here, I think you could make an argument that this is like his first attempt at an exodus. 
This is his first attempt at Exodus, right? I mean, Moses decides, listen, I'm not Egyptian. I'm Hebrew. What these Egyptians are doing to my people is wrong, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to be the deliverer. I'm going to bring about this desired end in my own life. But Moses wasn't ready, and it was not time. Moses is trying to bring about God's ultimate ends in his own way and is unsuccessful. You can want to bring about the right thing and do it in the wrong way and it prove sinful and unsuccessful. Perhaps we aren't so different. The next day, Moses sees two Hebrews fighting each other. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Verse 14, he answered, I made you a prince and a judge over us. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. Uh-oh, he saw me. You know, he knows that the, that the show is over. He saw that he had committed murder. And no, Moses knows that trouble is looming. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Summarize Moses, he's two Hebrews fighting one another. He tries to mediate. He's unsuccessful. In fact, he's called a hypocrite. He realizes everyone knows he's killed an Egyptian, so he decides to flee. He goes out in the desert to Midian where he stops by a well. And again, here we pick up our narrative. He sees another attempted injustice, right? Verse uh, 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them, saved these daughters, and watered their flock. So they go home and they talk to their father about it, and we'll look at that in just a moment, right? Again, Moses witnesses this attempted injustice, but this time he doesn't kill the guy, right? This time he, he just drives these shepherds away and helps the women at the well. In fact, he just waters their flock as well. We began to see this sort of servant heart of Moses sort of in its fledgling form. We begin to see Moses acting as this sort of righteous deliverer. This small act of service gets him dinner, and ultimately this act of service gets him a wife. Uh, we don't spend a whole lot of time really studying Moses' life in the book of Exodus. Um, one of my favorite sort of genres of books to read are biographies, right? Right now I'm reading a sort of memoir biography about the Boston Celtics and Bob Cousy, right? And I've read biographies about Steve Jobs, General Custer, a bunch of different folks. I think biographies are significant. I think biographies are interesting. I think the story of, of who people are and, and how they get where they go and why they do what they do and what drives them, I think that's so fascinating. But the ancients weren't so impressed. Right? The ancients just said, let's get to the action. I don't care about all that fluffy stuff. Let's get to the action. What did Moses do? That's what we care about, the ancients would say. And so here in just one chapter, we've got Moses' whole life, right? His whole birth, his, his whole growth in Egypt, and then his whole life in Midian. In fact, the text teaches us through the New Testament, we read uh, in the book of Acts, there's a lot of teaching about Moses and his life. And we learn that Moses was 40 years old when he flees to Midian. Moses is 40 years old when he flees to Midian. 
And then we learn that Moses will spend another 40 years in Midian, right? So Moses has spent 80 years of his life before we even pick up with the rest of the text. Think about that. 40 years in Egypt and 40 years in Midian before he would ever head back to Egypt. In the course of like 15, 20 minutes, we've just covered 80 years of the most famous person who's ever lived, wife, one of the most famous people. In the top five, he's got to be. Someone said Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something, 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing, and 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. You read that again. Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something, 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing, and 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. I love that. These years that he'll spend in Midian will shape him. Verse 20, we read a little bit more about this story, right? Just so we see it. He said to his daughters, this is the father who sent the daughters out. He said, why are now, why'd you come back so soon? They said, this man saved us, helped us. He said, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. These years of being a husband, these many years of being a father, these many years of living outside the power structures of Egypt, these many years of not buying for political power amongst his own people, these years were formative. These years were shaping him. He had no idea they were shaping him, and he certainly had no idea why they were shaping him, but this does not change the reality that they were, in fact, shaping him. And I think that principle holds true in our lives this morning, wherever you are. Perhaps you're a college student. If so, welcome back to campus in our city for the semester. Perhaps you're retired. Perhaps you're uh, working every day. Perhaps you're a kid. I don't know where you're at. But whatever you're walking through this morning, know that that is shaping you in some way, for better or for worse. You have no idea really how. Perhaps you'll get some glimpses here and there, and you certainly have no idea why. But, but trust that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, day in and day out, something's happening to you. You're being shaped. You're being formed. We don't just interact with the world, but the world interacts with us. You know, it just seems at this stage of the narrative, that Moses never could have led God's people through the wilderness. He never could have dealt with the sort of criticism he would be faced with. He would never have been able to do what God's called him to do. He would never be able, perhaps, to lead God's people through the wilderness until he'd already been through the wilderness himself. Next week, we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4. I'm not going to read line by line, but we're going to look at this major interaction between God and Moses that is sort of its own self-enclosed unit. And God shows up, and ultimately he's going to call Moses, but Moses is going to be reluctant. God does not find a young man ready to go and kill all the Egyptians. He finds an older man completely unsure of his own abilities. And I think that's exactly how God intended to find him. 
That's who God uses. Not those who rely on their own strength, but those who, when, when approaching the end of their own strength, rely on God's strength. God is about to use Moses in a mighty, mighty way. Look with me in verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and my favorite little phrase that I mentioned last week in the sermon because I couldn't wait to get to it is this, and God knew. And God knew. During those many days, right, perhaps those 40 years of Moses' time in Midian, 40 times 365, during those 14,600 days, Things changed, but the more things changed, the more things stayed the same. The king died, but the political situation is changing. That's good news for Moses. Maybe the next pharaoh won't want to kill him. But God's people are still enslaved. But God's people began to do something that we could infer perhaps they had not yet done. The text says in verse, uh, the end of verse 23, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. One commentator sort of remarks on this reality that God's people are beginning to pray. And he says this, however little they may have known about the true God at this stage in their emerging corporate theological education, they were during this time earnestly praying to him for help. And God, faithful both to his nature and to his promises, heard them. Later in Deuteronomy, Moses will look back and say, Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. Here's the key sentence I want us to get. The exodus did not come about simply because people were in trouble. It was the result of a prayer of lament for rescue to the only one who could actually do something about it. The exodus didn't just happen simply because people were in trouble. It was the result of a prayer of lament for rescue to the only one who could actually do something about it. This reminds me of the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 6 and Matthew 8. The one who knows all needs before they are prayed nevertheless expects them to be prayed for. What are we praying for this morning? God heard their prayers God remembered his covenant with Abraham, church, and God knew. I just love how open-ended that is. God knew. He knew their suffering. And he knew what he was going to do about it. He also knew that the, the deliverer he would send was not the end of the story of his people. In fact, Moses was just the beginning. Church, a, another baby would be born in great turmoil. Like Moses, this baby would be rescued from an evil ruler in his earliest years. Like Moses, this baby would sojourn in Egypt. And like Moses, many silent years would pass before this man's public ministry began at around age 30. Moses points us to this man. Moses is but a foretaste, but a glimpse through a veil of this man, this other deliverer. Right? Just as God's hand is on Moses, so too as Jesus is baptized, he says, this is my beloved son with, who I am, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. 
Just as God would bring about deliverance through one man in the Exodus, he would bring about ultimate deliverance through one man. Moses would lead his people out of slavery to Egypt, and Jesus would lead his people out of slavery to sin. Moses is a foretaste of Messiah. Jesus, the Son of God, is the true and better Moses. Jesus is God. Jesus is the same God who knew then and knows now. I don't know what you're going through. Our life experiences are probably very different, but God knows. God knows the pain in your life. God knows the things you don't want anyone else to know. God certainly knows the things you don't want him to know. But God loves you. God wrapped himself in flesh and moved into our neighborhood so that he could walk in our shoes and live the life that we were demanded to live. Unlike us and unlike Moses, Jesus never sinned. He never had one millisecond of a bad attitude and a root of bitterness never took hold in his heart. Unlike Moses, Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus would not fail at crucial moments of his ministry, right? Jesus would be obedient at crucial moments of his ministry. Jesus would not serve bread from heaven. Jesus would be bread from heaven. Church, I hope you learn about Moses this morning, but more importantly, I hope you learn about Jesus this morning. Because if we learn about Moses and don't learn about Jesus, we didn't get what God intended us to get from the story of Moses. Just as the Tevah saved Noah, just as the Tevah saved Moses, the Tevah, Jesus, is our ark who delivers God's people from God's wrath and who will bring about salvation to the nations. In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to do kind of like we did last time we did. You know, I share sort of the conundrum, right? When we take the supper, we want to take it together. And so in just a moment, um, we're all going to approach the Lord's table together. We'll ask the worship team to uh, sort of jump to the front of the line when we get there so they can partake of the elements and then uh, come up to the stage and uh, prepare to lead us in our final song. But as we approach this table, we realize that we are making a proclamation about who this Jesus is. We're preaching the gospel as we lift the cup and the piece of bread to our mouth. We are saying, right, with our actions, that Jesus Christ has lived, that Jesus Christ has died on our place, his body was broken and his blood was shed for sinners like us, and that we partake in him, and in him we are gods, and in him we are each others. We come to the table as one body, as one people. This is our family table, right? This is our family table. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the first thing I would say is, we're so glad you're here. Um, But this table, it wouldn't make sense for you to partake of the elements, right?